the nurse that was in charge of the of the trauma for one of our uh, really close hospitals spoke about that, about how what their capabilities and you know the the realization that they can't handle more than three or four serious patients or critical patients. They're strapped. They're done at that point. Angeles. This is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me today on this edition of Code 3. This is the show that gives you all the information on a firefighting topic you need in about 20 minutes. Let's get started. There have been several mass casualty incidents recently as a result of an active shooter. Although the public's attention is usually focused on the police response, these events ask a lot of a fire medical incident commander as well. If your department's training schedule doesn't include MCI-specific training, you could find yourself in trouble when you arrive at a real-world MCI and learn the hard way the importance of coordination of resources. Even small details like not blocking in paramedic units that need to transport become big problems when no one has planned for them. Here to discuss what ICs need to know about mass casualty incidents is Vince Batanazi. He's a battalion chief with the Myrtle Beach, South Carolina Fire Department. He's been there since 2007. Vince is a member of the department's ocean rescue team, and he's certified a USLA lifeguard. He also co-hosts the Beyond the Stretch podcast. We started by talking about what responsibilities the first arriving unit at a mass casualty incident has. Uh, you know, count, get an accurate patient count, uh, make sure that what they have responding is accurate, make sure that the information they receive prior to actually arriving on scene is accurate as well, and to start the triage process. Um, I actually made a mention in my article I wrote about an organization I for where the first arriving medic unit was actually primary responsibility was just triage and staying on scene, which uh, kind of stopped that um, ambulance from being ever used in the transport of patients. But uh, after they established a triage and maybe passed that on to another arriving company, then, you know, uh, taking a patient and uh, going to the hospital would be kind of what we try to do. So if those first guys on the scene see a scoop-and-go situation, should they do that and leave the scene? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we kind of uh, focus on that only because we have such a limited resources as far, as far as ambulances and, you know, you taking away tr- transport units strictly just to do, perform the, uh, the test of triage really kind of almost – you know, you're just now limiting your, your uh, resources more. So we uh, allow our, our ambulances to basically, you know, transfer that triage um, component to somebody else and then basically get into the stream of transporting patients. So once the IC arrives, what's their first responsibility? Their, their responsibility is basically to gain control, get accurate information. Uh, they should, uh, you know, uh, account for resources that are either already on scene 
or responding and make sure that's enough that they need. Preparing for this podcast interview, I've, I've, I've kind of gone on my mind a bunch of different uh, scenarios and instances I've been a part of from like all levels, from firefighter all the way up to battalion chief. But, uh, you know, as a battalion chief, uh, a lot of times you're, you're getting information uh, through the dispatch, through your computer, through um, uh, the first arriving companies. Sometimes the information is not 100% accurate and you may not, and I just taking the time to just, you know, gather all the information, uh, make sure that you have enough resources and to start accounting for how you're going to transport these patients uh, is the first kind of steps you need to do. Let's say you have an MCI with a fire or something related to that that divides your attention away from the victims. First of all, does the IC have a different job in that case? And then let me give you the second part of that too. Should the IC designate somebody to be in charge of the medical unit and then deal with the fire themselves, or where how do you go about doing that? For I guess a fire scenario or incident, we will practice these. We'll have a drill where we'll have a you know a single structure fire, and we have we have victims right. The the search group finds a victim, they bring them out, and a lot of times we don't account for it is the fact that a lot of times that that unit or company that's removing a victim from a fire is probably going to be tied up with some type of patient care. So that removes that company from their task on the fire ground. So as the IC, you got to make sure you have the ability to account for, uh, okay, now the rescue wants uh, company may be going with an ambulance to transport a severely either burned or a person in cardiac arrest to a, to a hospital. So you have to basically replace, plug and replace that um, need and that critical resource that still needs, because the building still has to be searched and the fire still has to be put out. Uh, we uh, operate with a safety officer in our organization. Some uh, organizations come with a, you know, they may have multiple battalion chiefs that arrive on, on, on some type of incident like that. And we will, we will if, if possible, definitely delegate and form a medical branch where we have multiple patients and um, someone that can oversee basically, you know, the triage and the assignment of uh, medic units to basically account for the transport of these patients to a medical facilities. Or if you have mutual aid, uh, we have an organization close to us that runs an EMS officer. They're a great, great resource for that because they already have the uh, relationships established with the ERs. They have direct phone comms, and they can basically help, you know, make sure that these patients are transported to facilities that are already uh, ready and can uh, fit, um, help these people. Yeah, I was thinking about that because there are many departments that have an EMS chief or a similar type of job. And that would be a great person to take control of the scene from the medical point of view. So there's been plenty of discussion about how to properly position fire apparatus at a fire scene. But what should ICs be thinking about medic units and MCI? We, not not intentionally uh, on our uh, side, but it actually, just because of our placement and uh, responding, um, the subsequent responding apparatus, uh, i.e. police, and they're not thinking about where they're really parking their vehicles. Uh, we, we really harp on our, our men and women to basically kind of, you know, forecast and be aware of their situation awareness and not lock themselves in a spot where they can't use their apparatus at all, especially ambulances, uh, whether that's their, 
report of a structure fire or an event like a, a mass casualty incident like an MBA or because you've got to be able to get back in the ambulance and, and leave the scene. So it's really critical to, to basically have a situational awareness and the size of uh, to put your, uh, put, put your apparatus in a spot that you can leave when you need to. Wow, does, is, is that something that we should do, but that isn't realistic when you get police arriving and other ambulances and they're all ready to go and they jump out and leave their vehicles wherever they want? Right, right. It is what it is. It's, yeah, you know, we had a, we had a call. It was actually a, a lot of times the police officers, you know, when they leave, their vehicles are secured. They may be running, but they're secured. So it's not as easy as just, just jumping in one of those cars and moving it. You have to find the police officer that has the key fob for that vehicle. Uh, yeah, I, I know a couple of instances where that's, that's occurred, but we have a relationship with our police department. We've, we've had, um, you know, multiple talks with their training officers and just reminding them, you know, to, if they're not in an immediate need to block the road or, or something with a scene to, to try to get them out of the way to, uh, allow for the stream of um, apparatus that are going to come that are going to be there for the uh, patients transported. If they are made aware of that on a routine basis in advance, they might be thinking more clearly about not just dropping their car and running, but putting it somewhere useful or at least out of the way. Yep, yes, sir. So is it the IC's responsibility to know about patient capacity at the various hospitals in the area, how many they can take at a time, how many bays they may have in a level one trauma center? So that's a really good question too. That's actually an aspect that I never uh, consciously knew about until we actually had a, um, a, a basically an EMS class where the nurse that was in charge of the of the trauma for one of our uh, really close hospitals came and, and and spoke about that about how what their capabilities are what is a level one trauma center and you know the the realization that their staff has short is, is short they can't handle more than three or four serious patients or critical patients i, I may say without basically they're strapped or done at that point and uh, that really got us talking and thinking about you know, making sure other options or less critical patients are necessarily taken if they can wait and be stabilized and taken to another, you know, facility. So we're not overloading, you know, basically the, these finite resources that are at the ERs as well. But yeah, if your organization has the ability to contact or, or talk to these resources or these liaisons from hospitals, that's a good, a good thing to know. And then sometimes you have no, you know, there might be an incident that's just so large scale that, you're limited, right? You have no choice but to, to take these, to, uh, or you may be an organization where you only have one hospital, and you know at that point, it kind of is what it is at that at that moment. And that again is where an EMS captain might be able to step up because they would presumably have a relationship with the hospitals. Yes, I mean, good point with that. Um, our our EMS one that's a, a part of another organization. I guess they have direct communications, they're able to contact via radio, uh, cell phone to the receiving facilities and, um, you know, allow them to kind of let us know what they, what they can take and what they can't. Now, I worked in a small city at one point and they didn't have a level one trauma center in their city. So they had to start calling helicopters and 
Eventually, they had to haul ground ambulances to transport to the level one in the next major city. And so I'm wondering if how that sort of situation might affect the IC's decision-making. So at one point, we were pretty, before our, our closest facility became a level two, level one trauma center, we were using helicopters pretty frequently to get uh, seriously uh, patients to those uh, level one uh, trauma centers or to burn facilities. As I guess, as our hospital system kind of, you know, was, was upgraded, they, we, helicopters are definitely a resource we don't use very often anymore. So, but if you are definitely an organization or in a small city that you have to, you know, and, and helicopter operations and, and air transports are different uh, has a different thing of operations. You have to dedicate, find a landing zone. You have to dedicate a crew or um, somebody to basically set up the LZ and make sure it's safe. And so that's the things they're going to be taking out of the, uh, this mass casualty incident or um, that may stress your resources as well, because you may have to take an engine and, and whatever else that is needed to set up uh, and make sure a helicopter can land and take off safely. Now, how often do you and your agency train for MCIs? Uh, we do pretty frequently, and obviously the, the sad reality is that the um, you know, uh, active shooter is kind of the hot training uh, scenario that's been, uh, that we've been working constantly with the police department with, and we've just had a, a, a pretty large-scale event with both our, uh, our fire department and the police department, and actually... Um, another uh, jurisdiction uh, back in March. So we, we've been training at least once or twice a year on these uh, mass casualty, mostly, mostly associated with, um, you know, active shooter events. Uh, but prior to that, there wasn't a whole lot of truly dedicated mass casualty incident training. A lot of our stuff we would learn from after action reviews. So we, we'd run an incident, uh, you know, for, for instance, we'd have a, uh, several people exposed to a possible chlorine leak at a swimming pool at one of our hotels. It would take a significant amount of resources. We transported several, several patients. We would determine that maybe the leak wasn't as significant, but just people had, you know, symptoms that we couldn't discount at that moment. And through AAR or after action reviews and just um, you know, speaking to everybody after the fact, we kind of would work on maybe updating policies or, you know, having some type of training component built in afterwards. But there wasn't a whole lot of dedicated, I guess, uh, training on mass casualty incidents. It's not just active shooter events that make up mass casualty incidents, although that's, as you point out, that's the popular one now to train for. What's your experience been with non-active shooter events? Pretty much the ones that come to mind uh, that have been kind of our, I wouldn't want to say like normal or routine, but... um. Uh, events that we've had, you know, um, motor vehicle accidents. We have, we've had uh, school buses involved in ma uh, mass, uh, you know, in, in a motor vehicle accident that uh, we've had tour buses involved. We've had incidents where just uh, one vehicle has f six family members and the second vehicle that uh, is involved has five or six as well. And, and that's way above our, you know, standard response capabilities. We've had hazmat incidents where possible potential hazards to like chlorine. And obviously all of that, especially the chlorine, that brings a whole nother aspect into that you have to consider uh, and stuff that you have to mitigate as an IT. And actually another one that just popped in my mind, we actually had a report of um, an airplane that had to do emergency landing at a regional airport due to um, an odor on the plane that was not normal. And 
you know, uh, it ended up being just uh, nothing that was really uh, hazardous, but that landing that plane, having a hundred and some passengers on it, like that was another um, event that could have gotten crazy real quick if uh, it ended up being something that was uh, substantial. Yeah. So when you as a bat chief arrive at one of these scenes, I'm going to say that it's common for dispatch to not get the true picture of what's going on because people don't typically report accurately. And I know that many times you get, there's a million people laying on the ground here. But but what about the opposite, where they don't tell you that there are a million people on the ground and you go out there expecting to find one or two and you find a real mass casualty event? Yeah, you're right. Um, we actually had a, a story I could tell that uh, I was actually thinking about earlier. I was still a firefighter. Oh, actually, no, I take it back. I was an acting officer at that time. And we go to an MVA at an at intersection in a corner. And at that corner actually sat a, uh, like a Walgreens or CVS drugstore. And so in our MDTs, the, we always get information on like who the caller for the 911 call is. So it says employee, right? Okay. So they have, they had, they happen to have to hear the accident and they call, uh, call it into us, right? The first person that calls in. So we go and there's uh, two or three patients in the, in the two vehicles involved and the ambulances all go away and, and we're just kind of, you know, I guess, putting some oil dry down on the fluids and the, uh, a member uh, employee comes from the, from the drugstore and goes, Hey, there's, what about the two people that are at our store? And we were like, what, you know, and we just happened to be that the two people that were injured in one of the cars, they went inside the, the drugstore to report the accident. They gave him seats to sit down. I'm like, well, that, just wait for the <laughs> and uh you know, there's a, a an example of that where you're not thinking oh they may have went into the store or they've gone into a house or they have left the scene um and have gone someplace else back to their hotel or, or what have you what the scenario could be so that was just one of those learning moments where all of a sudden we're, re- we're reacting to that because it's information that we probably should have had up front but no one even thought to consider go look at inside the um inside the drugstore for possibly more patients. Well, you would have expected someone to come out before you were mopping it up to say, hey, I've got somebody injured in here. Yeah, exactly. And and that's kind of kind of a, a, you know, and luckily it wasn't, no one was very seriously hurt or anything, but it, it just one of those things that you kind of like afterwards go, yeah, where were they to tell us or why did they not come, you know, but... <laughs> They did tell, you know, probably they did tell the 911 dispatcher that we do have some people in the store that were involved and they just thought we'd get the information relayed to us. And that's just a human chain of, um, of communication at that point. You know, there's always a breakdown and uh, what, what information you may think is coming to us from dispatch that the caller has told them, uh, you, know, you know, just kind of gets missed. Yeah, it happens. All right, thanks for talking with me about this today, Vincent Benazzi. I appreciate you being with me on Code 3. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, you guys have a great day. And you can find more information on running MCI at our website. Just go to code3podcast.com slash planning. That's code3podcast.com slash MCI planning. And this is the 300th regular episode of Code 3. It's been fun, although I have faced some challenges. 
No big special episode for this milestone. Just a note, thank you for being with me on this journey and hoping you'll stick with me as I continue it. Alright, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. I'll be back next time with more and I hope you'll join me. I'm Scott Orr and until then, stay safe. To contact us, get more information on today's show, or to subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.